Christian author came out with a book. It's probably been about seven or eight years ago now. The author's name was Reggie McNeil, and this was the title of his book. It is all about you. Now, before you write him off as blasphemous, his idea in the book was not to present a Christianity that made you the most important person in the world or the universe. Rather, the premise of his book was to say that if you do not take care of yourself spiritually, you cannot honor God with all of your life. So far from being a book that promoted this idea of a Christian's personal fame, reputation, wealth, health, or happiness, it was a book that focused on taking care of oneself so that one might bring honor and glory to God. I still hated the title of the book, but it was a pretty good read. I think in the book of 2 Timothy, we see Paul doing something similar for his son in the faith. Not telling Timothy that his life should be all about himself, but rather reminding Timothy that he needed to care for himself spiritually so he could bring honor and glory to God in his life and ministry. In 2 Timothy, we find Paul admonishing Timothy to finish his race of faith well. Throughout the month of June, I shared with you messages from the book of 1 Timothy about fighting the good fight of faith. In that letter, Paul the mentor encouraged his son in the faith, Timothy, to keep fighting the good fight by keeping faith and a good conscience. This morning, we'll begin an examination of 2 Timothy in the series, Finish the Race. Like the analogy of the Christian faith being a fight that one endeavors to win, the Christian faith may also be compared to a race in which one seeks to cross the finish line with a prize. In general, this idea or picture of the race of faith looks something like this. The runner is the Christian whose feet have been set on the track of faith by God's grace when that person first committed his or her life to pursue Jesus. The finish line is the end of earthly life. Once the runner has exerted every ounce of energy and effort that were available to him or her. And the prize is the crown of life. That Jesus, the righteous referee, awards to all of those who finish the race triumphantly. This is the race into which all of us have been placed. All of us who have come to know Christ as Lord we find ourselves running this path. Our goal is to finish the race. Paul longed for Timothy to finish the race that was set before him. In his first letter to Timothy, fighting the good fight fleshed itself out practically in guarding the gospel against false teaching. Here, in the second letter to Timothy, finishing the race moves from a spiritual metaphor to a concrete command in Paul's urging Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 is really the theme verse of the entire book. It's short and simple and to the point. 
There Timothy says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That one central command is the one from which all other admonitions in the entire book flow. Evidently, Timothy had heeded Paul's charge to expose the false teachers in the Ephesian church, just as he was instructed in the first letter. But after the writing of the first letter, Timothy seems to have lost some of his gusto. While he fought the good fight, he no doubt took a few hits, and it knocked him back. One grows weary after a fight, no matter how noble the cause or great the victory. Timothy's tiredness produced some potential problems for the young man. Neglecting his spiritual gift, chapter 1, verse 6. Becoming timid, chapter 1, verse 7. Growing weak, chapter 2, verse 1. And failing to continue in the truth, chapter 3, verse 14. As well as sharing pretty sermons instead of being faithful to preach God's word. Chapter 2, verse 15, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. These were all warnings that Paul gave to Timothy. If Timothy was going to finish the race, he needed to beware of pitfalls that he would encounter along his path. The fact of the matter is that at some point, every Christian in their walk with God or their race of faith gets a little weary from fighting the good fight. Even when we know the truth that we are ultimately triumphant through Christ. This tiredness is no excuse to fail to finish the race. God wants all of us to cross the finish line and stand before Him having run the race well. Having finished the course and having kept the faith. Paul provided himself as an example to Timothy of how to finish the race writing these words toward the end of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Paul wanted Timothy to keep the faith. He wanted Timothy to finish the race. And he wants and wanted all those who read this book to finish the race of faith set before them. After all, this is why God has put us in this race. Not to fail, not to stumble, and not to fall, not to get back up. He's put us in this race to finish, to succeed, to fulfill. This morning I ask you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. I want you to think about this question. How exactly are we to finish this race of faith? In this passage, 2 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 18, we find one of the keys to finishing the race. That is, get refreshed. We have to be refreshed in order to finish the race. We're refreshed by others around us. Let's read these few verses together and and see how Paul just did just that. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia Minor 
turned away from me. Among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now before we get in this passage, just thank the Lord that your parents didn't name you after one of these three guys, right? So I'm going to shorten their names just to make it a little bit easier. I practiced all week long on the correct Greek pronunciation, but I still probably Arkansas rednecked it. So we're going to call Phygelus, we're going to call him Fig, and Hermogenes, we're going to call him Herm. So you got Fig and Herm, and Onesiphorus, we'll call him Own. Does that sound good to everybody? Fig, Herm, and Own. You got it? All right. Well, what we find in, in this little caveat that Paul gives to Timothy of, of these three people in his life is really how Paul was able to continue running his race and ultimately to finish his race. You see, Paul got discouraged and tired just like every other Christian does in the journey of faith. He had spent a great deal of time in the place we know as Ephesus. In fact, those folks were very dear to him. So dear, in fact, that before Paul returned to Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 20, he gathered all of the elders of the churches around Ephesus together. And he encouraged them and exhorted them to continue the ministry that he had begun there. And the ministry that they were already doing. These people wept over him and prayed over him. In fact, some of them even exhorted him not to go to Jerusalem because they knew what awaited Paul there and they didn't want to see him bound in chains and let off under Roman guard for preaching the gospel. But something must have happened in Ephesus, just like it does in every church. You know, if you're around church long enough, church begins to look different, doesn't it? I mean, here, here's what I mean. You begin going to a church and you go there for some time and people who were longtime faithful members all of a sudden kind of start to fade to the background. They're not as involved as they once were. Maybe they can't be involved because they went to big church up in heaven, right? But some of them just, maybe they get a little older and they don't feel like they can contribute as much to the kingdom and so they fall out of church or some just get into the habit of doing other things in life and they don't participate as much as they once did. Or maybe somebody gets hurt or wronged and they're not all in like they once were. Or maybe some people just have this change of priorities. And it's not just that they fall out of church, but that they jump out of it. And it's discouraging when you once saw people seated in the pews and gathered in your Sunday school classes and walking step by step in faith with you. It's discouraging when those people aren't around anymore because they've gone on to glory. It's discouraging when those people aren't around anymore because they just physically aren't able to be there as much. But something more than discouraging is depressing. When people who once followed the Lord faithfully 
choose intentionally not to do so. That hurts. And this is the case with whatever happened with Fig and Herm. They decided that there was something more important than following Jesus on a daily basis. It's not just that they abandoned Paul when he got to Rome and was awaiting trial. The language here in verse 15 is that of turning away. This is the same word that's used to talk about people apostatizing, not just in personal relationship, but from the faith of the gospel. You see, Paul would have been personally hurt if these people had just decided, well, you're in Rome, we're still here in Asia Minor, we can't really spend as much time with you, send you letters, give you the personal affection that you need. This was a deeper divide. These two men had turned away from Paul because they had turned away from the faith. You say, oh, Jake, how could you dare talk about church members like that? Well, because church members do that sometimes. It's just reality. And in fact, it doesn't just hurt pastors or Sunday school teachers, but it hurts others, doesn't it? I mean, just think about it. I guarantee you that there are folks that used to sit beside you to the right or left or in front of you or behind you that you kind of go, man, what happened to them? And some of those stories you know, and some of those stories you go, they're gone. It's a little discouraging, and sometimes it's downright depressing. Even Jesus, who invested three years of his earthly life into 12 disciples, had one man who turned away from him in Judas. And don't think that that didn't hurt Jesus even though Jesus knew what was going to transpire beforehand, could you imagine the grief that he went through? Knowing as he's marching up the hill to Calvary that he has been placed under arrest because of one of his own followers who abandoned him, deserted him, turned away from him. Yeah, Paul was hurt. And I'm pretty sure that Paul knew Timothy had gone through that same hurt in Ephesus. I mean, imagine that charge in the book of 1 Timothy. Timothy, guard against false teaching. Well, how do you guard against false teaching? You have to tell some people they're wrong. Let me ask you something. Some of you really like me. Would you like it if I came up to you tomorrow morning at your house and knocked on the front door and said, hey, listen, I just need to tell you something. You're wrong. Would, you, would any of you like that? I'll knock on your front door tomorrow. We'll schedule a time if, if that sounds good. Nobody likes to hear that they're wrong, even if they are wrong. And there were people that Timothy knew were wrong, and he had the boldness and the courage to tell them. And I'm sure that when Timothy told some folks that, some folks re repented and talked with Timothy and communicated with them and said, well, you know, Timothy, how am I wrong? Show me. And he would show them, and they would change their position and viewpoints but I imagine that there were others who said, Timothy, I don't know who you think you are, but you're not Paul. And uh, Timothy, I don't know who you think you are, but you're just a young guy. You don't know what you're talking about or who you're talking to or how to deliver this message. So Timothy, I tell you what, it's either my way 
or I'm going my own way. And Timothy would have had to say, look, this is not your way and it's not my way, it's God's way. And if you don't want to go his way, we ain't going the same way. And they probably left him there. And it hurt. But Paul also had some people in his life that didn't just hurt him, but they helped him. And Paul wanted to remind Timothy that not everybody around him and not everybody at the church in Ephesus was going to fall away. Not everybody was going to abandon him. Not everybody was going to desert him. In fact, there would be faithful people who would be there to lift him up and encourage him and support him in his race of faith. And Paul wanted Timothy to be refreshed by those people. And I want you to be refreshed by those people in the race of faith. So instead of talking about Fig and Herm, because they're pretty much worthless characters in this story. In fact, they're not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. We're going to get rid of those guys and move on to a guy who's mentioned in three verses. And in fact, he's mentioned again at the end of the book. This is a man, Onesiphorus, we'll call him On, that Paul said, I want the Lord to grant mercy to him. Not once, but twice. Because of the great encouragement and refreshment that Onesiphorus had given to him. He brought new breath to Paul's life. He lifted up his wings so that he could soar. He gave him the strength that he needed to press on. And there are three ideas about this refreshment that Onesiphorus provided that I want you to see. The first is found in verse 16. It's the refreshment of unashamed support. The refreshment of unashamed support. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Paul was literally chained when he was imprisoned. Now, depending upon how you interpret this passage and list out Paul's life chronologically, most people think that Paul was imprisoned in Rome and then released and then re-imprisoned in Rome. Others think that Paul just had one big imprisonment in Rome and he's also spent some time at a minor facility there in Asia Minor, most likely Ephesus. However you try to order Paul's life, the fact of the matter remains that Paul spent some time bound hand and foot. And that's a time when you Want somebody to be proud of you, right? Or at least you need somebody to be proud of you. I mean, I imagine that regardless of the fact that Paul was preaching the gospel and doing what God wanted him to do, regardless of how much it cost him, it was still kind of hard to deal with these metal objects that were tying his hands together or were keeping his ankles weighted to the ground. I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody get into the back of a police car and said, thank you, Jeff Yates, for taking me to jail? Which doesn't happen most of the time, does it? When's the last time you saw somebody transported to prison with a sign on the back of the prison bus that said, we're glad to be here, hands waving out the window, honk if you love us and are proud of what we've done. No. Arrest is meant to bring people to the point of being ashamed of themselves and of what they've done. 
That's why it's publicly humiliating to have to put on handcuffs in our day and time and get in the back of a police car. There were people, I'm sure there in Ephesus, that the moment Paul was arrested went, Ooh, ah, he's a good preacher, but I don't, I don't know about all that. But Onesiphorus was not one of those people. He was not ashamed of Paul's chains. In fact, he provided unashamed support for the Apostle Paul. And really this unashamed support brought both personal reassurance to Paul that there is somebody who cares about me. And it also brought about great spiritual reassurance. There's somebody who's proud of me for being arrested. And it's not because I've engaged in criminal activity that nobody should participate in. It's because I am obeying God rather than men. I am preaching the gospel of the kingdom and all of it's worth it. I imagine it got lonely for Paul at times. I imagine it got difficult and hard. I imagine there were times that he wished he had certain clothes or writing utensils or foods to eat. And Onesiphorus provided him the opportunity to have some of those things. But he also gave Paul a deeper reassurance that what Paul was doing was worthwhile. Unashamed support. Regardless of what happened, he chose to support Paul, his teacher, the follower of Jesus, the faithful missionary who planted churches and invested in new followers of Jesus Christ. There are times that we need that, don't we? We need people in our lives like Onesiphorus. And it's not that it's all about us in the sense that we have to have people patting us on the back all of the time. But let's, let's just be honest. There's times when we need people to support us, to love us, and to pray for us, and to be there for us. And it might sound kind of like, well, I, I don't need anybody. I, I can be faithful to Jesus. Don't be too proud. Paul wasn't. And Paul knew Timothy was in the same place he was. He knew Timothy was discouraged and depressed. But he knew that there were people still in that church at Ephesus that would be faithful to support Timothy no matter what. There are people around you that legitimately love you that are cheering you on. This is really what the word refreshed in Greek means. In fact, the word is used for cheering people on in a physical race when they run before in Greek literature. You need to listen to those people when they tell you that they love you. When somebody gives you a phone call and says, hey, I'm praying for you today. God just put you on my heart. Instead of bowing up and saying, well, thanks, but everything's going good. Man, how about you just break down and tell them what you need prayer for? Let them refresh you and let them encourage you. Instead of thinking that you can make it through the Christian life on your own, how about letting the other people who are running the race of faith with you encourage you to keep going? This is what Onesiphorus did for Paul. 
It was, an refreshment, it was a refreshment of unashamed support. Your Sunday school teachers love you and support you. Let them do it. They're praying for you. You've got friends, longtime Christian buddies and girlfriends in this church that want to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Let them do it. They're not ashamed to be called your friend. They're not ashamed when you're trying to talk to a family member or a co-worker about Christ and that family member or co-worker doesn't want anything to do with you ever again or looks at you like you're crazy. Let them support you and be refreshed by their support. And then not only did Onesiphorus choose not to be embarrassed by Paul's chains, but verse 17 says, when he came to Rome to visit the city, he eagerly searched for me and found me. This is the refreshment of personal touch. Evidently, it was difficult for people to find Paul once he was imprisoned in Rome. His address might not have been publicly displayed for everybody to see. He might not have had the opportunity to send word back to Ephesus so that people who were coming to the big city could visit him and talk with him and encourage him. But that did not deter Onesiphorus from seeking Paul out and discovering where Paul was. He chose to provide a personal touch to the Apostle Paul, who was probably in desperate need of one at that point in his ministry and life. The refreshment of personal touch. I have no doubt that when Own came in there to see Paul, that it wasn't just like, hey buddy, good to see you. I imagine that Paul was so excited to see somebody that he knew and somebody that loved him and cared enough about him to find him and to take the time to go see him. That Paul stood up, maybe chains and all, and gave up this for us a big old hug. They embraced and they talked and on this first pat him on the back and encouraged him to keep going and to finish the race that God had set before him, even though it had landed him in some prison time. Sometimes we need a personal touch, don't we? And again, it's not that life is all about us. It's just that in order to finish the race, we need to let people come into our lives and give us the encouragement that we need to keep going. I'll give you an example. There's a well-known uh, Sunday school guru by the name of Alan Taylor who works for Lifeway. And uh, he encourages people to, uh, to teach Sunday school faithfully and recruit new members for their classes and to start new Sunday school classes and to minister to church members in need and to evangelize the community around them. He's just got a lot of neat stuff. Well, he was talking about employing some, some greeters, some folks to smile and shake hands and distribute bulletins when people are coming into their church on Sunday mornings. And so he decided to enlist an older lady in the church who was a widow. She spent the majority of her time at home. She didn't have any children or grandchildren who lived close. It was just her kind of left there, lived in her two-bedroom uh, two little house, and that was about it. So one Sunday morning, as Alan was coming up to tell this older woman, thank you for the service that she was providing to all of these other people 
around her as they came into the doors and were greeted by a friendly face and a warm handshake and a, hello, how are you doing? We're glad to have you here this morning. Alan said he just came up, and Steve, I'll use you as an example if I can. You're taking a leave of absence, so i got to give you a hug before you go on vacation for a little while. So Alan said he just came up to this lady and said, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you taking the time every Sunday morning to welcome our folks, and I just want to let you know that. And he said as he gave this woman a hug and was about to begin to walk away, he, he noticed she began to cry. And it wasn't just this, you know, overwhelming weeping, but it was just tears kind of rolling down her face. And he came back to her and he said, ma'am, is, is everything okay? And she said, yeah. She said, but I, I cannot tell you how much I needed that from you this morning. He said, well, what's going on? And she said, Alan, I don't get out of the house anymore. My husband's been dead a few years now, and my kids and grandkids live off. She said, that is the first time anybody has touched me in any way since last Sunday when I came to church. She needed a personal touch in her life. And the moment she received it, it gave her what she needed to keep running the race and to finish well. It wasn't that her life was all about herself. It's that she wanted her life to be all about Jesus. And in order for that to happen, she had to be refreshed. She was refreshed by another person around her who provided a personal touch. And look, for you, maybe somebody just needs to come up and hug you. Some of you are grumpy sometimes. Maybe I'm just going to start hugging everybody. Steve needed a hug this morning, maybe. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's not so much a, a physical, personal touch as it is. You, just, you need a card in the mail. And when it comes from your Sunday school class, it says, hey, we've missed you a couple of weeks. Don't write that off as, a, ah, they're just trying to get me to come back to church. They've probably legitimately missed your presence in their classroom because they love you and they care about you. Maybe it's a Facebook post or a picture or a card. Maybe it's just somebody taking the time to swing by your office while you're working and say, hey man, I was just thinking about you this week. When people provide you with those personal touches in life, take it as refreshment from the Lord. To keep going and to finish the race. And then in verse 18, we also find out what Onesiphorus did to provide Paul with refreshment. Verse 18 says, The Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. I like this. You know, Timothy, very well what services Onesiphorus rendered me, Paul, at Ephesus. In verse 15, uh, Timothy had just heard the rumors and the, the hearsay about how Fig and Herm had abandoned Paul. But in verse 18, we get the idea that Timothy knew from personal experience how Onesiphorus had provided refreshment to Paul through helpful service. This refreshment of helpful service is something that's incredible to me because even though we're told Onesiphorus did some wonderful things for Paul in Ephesus, we are not told exactly what he did. Do you know that? 
We're not told that Onesiphorus gave Paul some money so that he could buy clothes while he was in prison. We're not told that Onesiphorus wrote Paul 13 letters that helped him get through 13 really hard days in the ministry. We're not told that Onesiphorus decided to serve Paul by doing this or doing that. We're just told that he rendered services to Paul at Ephesus. This was refreshment of helpful service. Whatever the needs were, this man chose to meet those needs. Not to get glory and honor for himself. But simply to serve Paul. To be a help to him. He chose to put himself to the side and put Paul before himself. So that he could help Paul and encourage Paul. To keep Paul going. To keep him running so that he could finish his race. The refreshment of helpful service. A lot of times we don't like to admit that we need to be served, do we? We'd be all super spiritual and quote verses from Luke chapter 19. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. Look, man, I, I got news for you. You ain't Jesus. And sometimes you just need people to help you and to serve you. And it's not because it's all about you. It's just because you keep thinking too many times throughout your Christian life, it is all about you. And you keep thinking that if I don't go see this person, nobody's going to see him. And if I don't do this at the church, then nobody's going to do it. And if I don't minister to so-and-so, then nobody's going to minister to him. And because you keep thinking all of these things, you reach this point where you get burnt out and exhausted and you start to go, man, I don't know if I can keep going. In reality, you need somebody to come and to serve you. Not because it's all about you, but because it's all about Jesus. And when those people serve you, they're serving Jesus by serving you. Let them serve you. It's a hard one to learn, isn't it? Richard Foster wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline years ago. It's become kind of a hallmark for spiritual habits and, and attitudes and ways to grow in your faith. And in one chapter, he talks about the discipline, the spiritual discipline of service. And in that chapter on service, he talks about serving others, but he also talks about receiving service from others. And it's a very humbling experience to admit that we actually need other people to help us. Is it not? I mean, I think about instances like this in the New Testament. A man's crippled. He can't walk. He's been laying on a mat for who knows how long. And he hears Jesus is in town and Jesus can heal all kinds of people, including lame people that can't walk. And he thinks, man, it'd be awesome if I could just get there. And he goes, but how am I going to get there? And his four buddies come and pick him up on his mat and take him to the house where Jesus is teaching and ministering to people. And they can't get in the house because there's such a big crowd there. But that doesn't stop them. They go up on a roof and they dig a hole through the roof and they lower the man on his mat down to Jesus. Jesus looks at the man and looks up at the ones who have lowered him through the roof. He forgives the man's sins and he heals the man. And the man gets up and leaves the house walking and praising God. What do you think would have happened in that story if that man would have said, Hey, guys, don't bother taking me to see Jesus. I'll get there myself. I guarantee you, he wouldn't have left the house walking that day. There's times in life when we just honestly need to admit 
that we need some help and we need to let others serve us. Say, Jake, that's no kind of a Christian attitude. I'm not talking about an attitude that says everything is all about you. I'm talking about an attitude of humility that says it's all about God and I need to let people serve God the way God has called them to serve. Even Jesus was served. Even though he didn't come chiefly to, to be served, but to serve other people, there were people who still came to him to serve him. Did you know that? Think about this story in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus is dining at the house of a Pharisee and this woman comes in with a jar of alabaster perfume, very expensive. She breaks down on the ground before Jesus, busts a jar of perfume and slathers it all over his feet. Slathers a new word I just invented. And when she slathers this all over his feet, she's snotting and crying and rubbing Jesus' feet, anointing him to wash off the dirt and the grime and to tell him how much she loves him and that she's there to worship him. You think Jesus really needed that? But at the same time, he probably needed that, didn't he? I mean, I imagine that he got tired a lot of days ministering to people and teaching people and pouring out and giving of himself and emptying himself of every effort, energy that he had. But yet this woman knelt down to help him, to serve him, to show him that she loved him. And I have no doubt that that day at this Pharisee's house, that action refreshed Jesus' spirit. And encouraged him to keep going. To run the race that was set before him. The race that would ultimately lead to a cross being tied to his back. As he marched up the hill. To go and to continue to give of himself for the sins of the world. I imagine that as he marched there up that hill to Calvary. Faces flashed through the memories of his mind. Faces of people who loved him. And encouraged him along the way in his earthly ministry. Maybe his mom and the stories she told to him growing up. Maybe his dad, maybe his brothers, maybe some friends. And maybe even folks like this woman from Luke chapter 7. Who bent down to serve Jesus by anointing his feet. And I have no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind. That Jesus finished his race. I know that because he cried out from the cross there as he's dying. It is finished. That as our sin debt was paid in full. Jesus had accomplished the mission for which he was sent. He died on the cross for our sins. He bore the guilt of the world. and He died there to save each and every one of us. Folks, I'm going to tell you this. Jesus called us to follow.